Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, Today I have Sally Embry. She's a VP of Public Health and Medical Technologies at Data Robot. She's had a career that uh, encompasses public health, technology, and innovation. She has advanced degrees in epidemiology, environmental and occupational health, and environmental engineering. Uh, She was a former CDC researcher, and she's led numerous research initiatives, including development of clinical trials and international and U.S.-based emergency preparedness and response. So, Sally, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, tell me about uh, what's Data Robot? What's the premise of it? Yeah, so Data Robot is an enterprise AI company. We have software that essentially helps understand and automate the machine learning and data science field. So, you know, traditionally we work with large companies to help them use machine learning in a scalable and accessible way. But at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we started working towards how we could solve for COVID-19 as a data science problem. So we actually reallocated about 50% of our R&D resources towards people just looking at how to best model COVID-19 predict outbreaks. And yeah, that's where we are today. I mean, we still have our core product, which is in that enterprise AI space, um, but we still have a a lot of dedicated folks that are working on numerous initiatives in the COVID-19 space. So within the space, what are you doing? What are you trying to figure out using the AI? 
Yeah, so the first, the way we started out initially was actually trying to predict hotspots, spots where cases were emerging, and also focusing on a, a different variable than what other people were looking at. There was a lot of kind of COVID dashboards. If you put yourself in the mindset about a year ago, there was a lot of different COVID dashboards around cases. And what we were really focusing in on was this unknown infected population. So, you know, COVID-19 has a pretty high rate of asymptomatic individuals, people who don't have symptoms, but are capable of spreading the disease. And so though understanding how many of those people are out there, people who are spreading and don't know about it, transmitting to friends and family, that became a major focus of our models. So we were using hundreds of different publicly available data sources to both understand kind of the similar metrics that other people were looking at, but also go deeper into understanding where transmission was occurring before those hotspots emerged. How would you know if someone, why don't you just say everybody, if someone's asymptomatic, you just say everyone. I mean, how would you know if someone's asymptomatic, why would they get tested? And so it just seems like it'd be a very poor signal to try to focus in on that. Like, how'd you do it? So that was where we tried to understand exactly using the scientific literature, like what percentage of folks were asymptomatic, um, understand like what their risk of transmission was. So everyone has a different viral load curve. So viral load is just like a measure of the amount of virus that sits in a particular sample or in a person's body. And the amount of virus there is correlated to your ability to transmit, your ability to be contagious. So not everyone is going to be the same level of contagiousness, and it will also change over time. So generally, your peak viral load, your peak contagiousness is around the time of symptom onset, and it's like a big peak. So you you get exposed about, on average, five days after you're exposed. You have this big increase in your in the virus buildup in your body. That is where you're peak contagious, and then it, it goes down over time. So you have this, this moment where people are highly, highly contagious. And if they're asymptomatic, they have no idea. And if they're not wearing a mask or not washing their hands and they're kind of out and about, then you risk a, a really high percentage of those people being able to spread to many, many others if it's just kind of the, the right place at the right time. So you don't want to say just everybody is a risk because from a modeling perspective, that doesn't give you a good idea of where cases are emerging or how you can be more proactive, right? Like, if you just say everyone, then we run out of resources real fast. And that's what we saw at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. So you need to be more specific than that. And then you need to be very specific about when those people pose the biggest risk and at the right time. So that was what our kind of initial focus was, was where are those people and where are they emerging from? But again, how would you identify them? If they're asymptomatic, by definition, they don't really have symptoms. So I mean, yeah. you talked about viral load peaking in a symptomatic person when the symptoms appear, but what is the curve if, if someone's asymptomatic? And how would you know, like, who, who have you looked at or who has been looked at that showed no symptoms, but, you know, what their viral load was over a period of time? Well, so that actually was what led us to start the Contagion Net project. I was trying to understand asymptomatic spread and how we can more easily identify asymptomatic people. So if you're able to test more often, if people are able to understand their status more often using rapid antigen tests, then you're able to identify if those people are at risk of transmitting to others. But this was more early days. So we weren't really working on how to identify people as individuals. We were working with federal partners to try to understand where these cases might be emerging and try to understand what the chain of events would be in terms of secondary transmissions and and how that might relate to larger community spread. So we were looking at the population as a whole. So COVID is often treated or was often treated as like one big pandemic, but in the United States, especially how big the United States is, it's actually lots of little epidemics 
surging in different places at different times. So if you can understand where the virus is going, if you can forecast out where things are going to, to get hot into the future, um, then you can be better at allocating resources to those areas. So we weren't really focusing on the individual level as much at that point, as much as we were looking at counties and cities, places at risk that we could help identify as, as hotspots before they got too, too hot. Yeah, but the reaction of cities and municipalities wasn't to study. It was just to, oh, the numbers are rising. We better do this. We better do that. So they were the same methods kind of applied or similar methods applied just ad hoc on a whole population basis based on models that who knows if they were right or not. I mean, so how, how did you correlate to see whether your models were accurate or not accurate? Like what, what was some of the internal details of it? Yeah, so we did a, a number of different things in terms of backtesting our models to understand how they, uh, how accurate they were over time. We also used a range of different scenarios to understand how the models could be impacted by different external forces as well. So, for example, when we, when it was past the second peak moving into fall and winter, we introduced a new scenario around behaviors that are, would be similar to flu, essentially. So people going inside more, hunkering down a little bit more, being closer together um, in indoor environments. And so we, we used those assumptions to help drive like how the pandemic would spread after people were more kind of close together and, and dealing with potential comorbidities as well. So we ran these different scenarios as well to try to understand different trends at different times. So depending on the scenario in these different areas, you could actually say, okay, like, you know, this is where we expect the cases to get, this is where we expect a larger outbreak based off, you know, changes in the temperature and then changes over time in that particular area. So really looking at things from like hundreds of different modeling capabilities instead of like a, a, a whole pandemic. So, but I think what you're more asking is, is how did we work with our federal partners in order to drive action on the ground? And so, like I said, we're an a, traditionally an AI company. So a lot of our work was focusing in on how we could better optimize our data, improve the quality of the data that was out there, understand where data was missing as well. And so we've worked on a number of different initiatives from working with some of the vaccine trials um, to helping our federal partners understand where there might be resource and PPE needs in particular areas um, to more recently helping reopen K-12 schools. And so that's actually been a major focus of ours over the past couple of weeks is using all the lessons learned. How can we now use that data to apply to K-12 school reopenings as well? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, weren't lockdowns an approximation of what happens in the winter? They forced people inside in close proximity, didn't let them go outdoors. So, I mean, even though that's happening in the summer, that essentially kind of models what happens in the winter in a way. So what did that do to your models? Did you look at that? Or you, you waited till uh, again, the fall and the winter to, to do some modeling based on like traditional behaviors of what would happen normally? So we did forecasting models based off what we believed that would happen uh, in terms of people going inside over the winter and 
you know, cooler temperatures, keeping people indoors more and keeping them. So we began that modeling effort. Um, we began our initial modeling effort in March and April. And then we slowly worked to get our forecasting models out further and further and further. So it started off with a, a short-term 30-day forecast. And then as we got a better understanding of the data, then we could start forecasting out further with confidence up to four to eight weeks. At this point, we can actually forecast up to about 12 months in advance with various precisions based off kind of what the trends are in a particular area. So we've really tried to lengthen out our ability to understand these forecasting models. And then the scenarios that I mentioned are built on top of that. So in addition to the forecast, we can look at these scenarios around what happens if people are indoors more, uh, what happens if there's a variant and that variant is more contagious than uh, what we've seen previously? What's the impact of people getting vaccinated over time and how does that contribute to spread as well? So those are all variables that we try to take into consideration in our different scenarios and they impact the overall modeling scenarios as well. Well, what did you find? What jumped out at you in your modeling? So, I mean, the big thing that jumped out to us was <laughs> the quality of data out there was sparse and ever-changing. So that was kind of the first hurdle that we had to overcome was where do we actually get accurate data on all these different variables that we wanted to collect and all those different variables that could impact how, how spread occurs. So we didn't want to just look at cases and emergence in incidents and prevalence. We wanted to understand if there was socioeconomic factors that could be involved, if there is racial inequities, if there were trends at a, a census block level that we can help identify where cases are emerging. So that requires really precise data from a lot of different data sources. There's no one data source that you can really lean into. So we had a whole team at one point of data detectives that were just finding publicly available data sources that we could feed into our models, QA, and then try to make sure that we had equal coverage for all the different variables that we were looking at. So that was probably the, the first thing that stood out, was just the, the need for uh, more consistent data, the need for identifying where missing data, uh, identifying missing data. And then those missing data, uh, the other thing that kind of emerged out of that was how inaccurate the reporting was often. So even places that were boasting really good laboratories that have been doing testing reporting for, for decades were really struggling with how to report testing in relationship to COVID-19. There was a lot of mandates in how fast that reporting needed to be brought to the federal government, what kind of variables needed to be included. And so the missing data and the inaccuracy of some of that data reporting really drove some of our initial kind of other work in different spaces of how we could boost up the overall accuracy and, and help fill in the gaps as well. You know, has your modeling worked so far or do you feel like you need more data and it's not well understood or you know, how far along are you? Oh, we're, we're very far along. Our, our models are used by uh, top federal partners. I, I think what's been amazing about from it where it's been able to expand into to other types of projects. So it's the backbone of uh, the Contagion Net project. Um, it's the backbone of our K through 12 testing. Um, it's often tapped as a resource for, for other different projects in terms of how we can kind of best utilize and understand things like vaccine efficacy or the opening and shutting down of clinical trial sites. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So uh, the models have been, is really the backbone for all the other work that we do. Um, are you able to say which uh, partners have used it, where it's being used and to what success or no? I believe I've, 
so we've formed really good partnerships with folks at HHS, FDA, CDC, NIH. Those are all partners that have touched the data in some way or another. Are there any uh, new nuances in the modeling that you think are important? Anything that's uh, recently come about that's of interest? I think one of the biggest things that we've been really trying to focus on and get a handle on are the emerging variants and trying to understand their impact in relationship also to the uptake of people adopting getting the vaccine as well. So there's a certain tug of war going on between the contagiousness and spread of these variants, as well as more and more folks, especially in the United States, getting vaccinated. And then how does that interplay work? Is there one that will come out in front of another? And, and a lot of that is dependent on understanding the, the, where these variants are and, and how they're spreading. So that's a big thing that we have been uh, trying to dig in on more and really trying to understand all the different variants that are out there as well. And the U.S. is particularly sparse on kind of testing which variants are, are associated with uh, a particular case. And so that's another kind of missing data gap that is required in terms of understanding this tug of war. Um, so when I, I looked the, at the, um, you know, the CDC at last count, I saw there was like over 300,000 variants since the start that and just say together. So, I mean, how would you model so many hundreds of thousands of variants? You can't model that many hundreds of thousands of variants. So you, you have to focus on the ones that, that take hold within the population. So there are certain ones that show a risk of being more contagious. There are certain mutations that you need to focus in on that would require like a higher level of concern. So if it's something within the receptor binding domain that might impact how we register a PCR test or the accuracy of an antigen test, those are things that kind of raise special flags that you want to zoom in on. So we take a lot of the variants that you've heard of in the, the news uh, into consideration in our current models. So the UK variant, the Brazil variant, the South African um, and then we have, we closely monitor others as they're emerging. So there's been recently talk about this double variant that's coming out of, I believe, California. And so, which is a, a mix of the UK and a, an additional mutation as well. So we make sure that we are tracking those emerging variants as well. So if one tends to start taking hold in a particular area, if there's data on that, we can track it. Okay. Well, well very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more? Like, can they look at the models or like, you know, do they just get guidance from their local or federal state government or federal government yeah. or state government? Like, how do people so find out can, more? They can find out more about our data robot initiatives at datarobot.com slash COVID. So there they can learn more about all of the work that we've done from the models through K through 12, through ContagionNet, basically past, present and future work. Okay, excellent. Anything else I should have asked you you want to point out about the effort or are there any future efforts that are coming that are different or interesting? I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about Contagion or not or not. That's what we had thought you were going to talk about, but maybe maybe you had a shift. Oh, well, the modeling, is that Contagion Net or is that something different? Is oh, that for future? It's completely different. Yeah. Tell me about Contagion Net. I thought it was just about COVID. Yeah. So ContagionNet is a data robots effort to build a rapid antigen test and combine it with AI technology in order to understand case outbreak at a more granular level. So I talked earlier about that viral load and how you can de detect asymptomatic individuals. So in response to things like we saw in our earlier work around missing data and inaccurate data reporting, we realized that there was a need for another type of testing tool out there that would ensure accurate data reporting and be affordable enough for, for anybody to, to take and use on a regular basis. And so we actually stepped outside of our traditional wheelhouse even more and have been developing our own rapid antigen test. And 
we're seeking FDA emergency use authorization on that. And it, it's got some fun quirks that make it different than other antigen tests on the market. And then we combine it with an AI-driven digital system that allows you to see reports to public health authorities in real time, date cases as they're emerging at the zip code level, which again, just kind of helps reinforce our ability to respond appropriately and pull resources into an area or open up a testing clinic or understand vaccination trends. So it really is a way to kind of understand more granular data and also identify those asymptomatic spreaders. When, uh, when will Contagion Net, you think, be, uh, I don't know, in widespread use? Like, how long do you guess it would take to, uh, to get your rapid antigen test going? So it'll take a couple months to go through the FDA EUA process. We're moving as quickly as we can through that. But then after that, really, we, we want to make sure that we're able to scale up and, and reach as many people as possible. Okay. So hopefully in a few months then. Yeah, hopefully. Well, very good. Well, well again, Sally, wh- where can people go? Just to datarobot.com or where should they go for more info? datarobot.com slash COVID. They can learn more about all of our efforts. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.